Okay, I've been happily gabbing away with Harold Wilshinsky for maybe 15 minutes when he suddenly came out with this warning. You start an insurance man talking, you're out of luck. They seemed to refer to a body of folk wisdom about the ways of insurance men that I'd never heard of, but I kept my mouth shut about that because Harold is the kind of person I don't run into much. Harold is a dapper, cufflinks-wearing 79-year-old, and he gives advice to people for a living. Insurance advice, estate planning advice. And I had asked him to come into the studio to tell the story of this piece of advice that he gave over 15 years ago to his own daughter and his son-in-law. Back then, they'd invested all their money with this guy who ran this great hedge fund, and it was all their money, which Harold was not happy with. He says that violates one of the basic rules of investment. Diversification. And... uh I said, I said, you know, I don't care how good this guy is. I don't care if he's God himself. You just don't put all your money with one person. I mean, 20, 25 percent of your money, fine. But how, how do you put all your – all with someone named Madoff. Madoff, of course, was Bernie Madoff, who just this week pleaded guilty to 11 felony charges and went to jail for what prosecutors say was a $65 billion, that's billion with a B, dollar Ponzi scheme. But back in 1993 or so, when all this happened... I didn't know Madoff from a hole in a wall. The son-in-law, whose name is Merrill, had given Madoff his entire pension fund. It was maybe half a million dollars. And he gave Madoff this money because his father and two of his brothers had both given everything they had to Madoff. Like all of Madoff's clients, on paper they were doing great, earning 15 20% on their money each and every year, a huge rate of return. But when Harold asked, how does he get that great return, Merrill had no idea. None of Madoff's clients did. Madoff wouldn't tell them how he made the money. It was proprietary. And did it seem suspicious to you? That, that's the thing. No, wasn't. no. I, uh, I, I, I'd love to be able to answer you and say, oh, yeah, I knew. I had it figured because I would be a, one of the few geniuses in that field. No. He just thought it was bad to throw all your money into one hedge fund. And he made this very, very clear, abundantly clear, to his daughter Pam and to Merrill. And I'm not exactly shy about stating my beliefs on things. Yes. Yes, he likes, he loves to give advice, especially to me. This is Pam, and with her, Merrill. You know, child rearing, um, advice on relationships, marital. And he heard that all of that money was in one fund, and he always believed in diversification. And he's very emotional. He felt very strongly that we were making a huge mistake and we needed to fix it right away. And he made me so nervous that I, you know, then after he left, my husband and I had an entire discussion, let's say. And I and I said, you better get your money out of there tomorrow. I don't care about what your brothers say because I figured they would be upset, which they were. She and Merrill were so frantic that Merrill didn't just diversify, like Harold was suggesting. He pulled all their money out of Madoff's hedge fund. The father got me so nervous. <laughs> I would have bit your head off if you would have left in anything. And then something kind of unfortunate happened to them. For the next 16 years, Merrill had to watch his brothers and his father make a fortune with Madoff. Their money doubled every three or four years until they had millions. And this wasn't just on paper. Merrill's dad was retired and his account was set up to send him a check every month to live off of. He felt so strongly about Madoff that on his deathbed, he actually urged Merrill to please, please, just one thing, please go back to Madoff. And so for 16 years, Harold's advice to leave Madoff really seemed like the worst advice Merrill had ever been given. I was very upset with him for 16 years. 
He was very angry, and then every so often he would rant and rave, you know, your big mouth, stupid father, cost me all this money, why didn't he keep his big mouth? He would never say a word to my father. I would hear about my stupid father. And my daughter never missed an opportunity, (laughs) God bless her, (laughs) to let me know about, you know, she she was like his spokesperson. Meryl thing. Meryl, Meryl doesn't... <laughs> well, and what would she say to you? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think Meryl will ever get over what, what you did when you told him to take his money out. I mean, I would say to him, you're such a know-it-all. Why didn't you keep your mouth shut if you didn't know about this Madoff? I said, Pam, I didn't tell him to take his money out. I told him he should diversify. Didn't want to know. And and let me ask you, did you at some point start to regret that advice? That's that's an excellent question. No. That's amazing, now that you mention it. No. And then finally, after 16 years of family strife about this, 16 years on the wrong side of history... Harold found himself vindicated. This fall, Madoff was arrested. The truth came out about his con. The news broke, if I'm not mistaken, on a Thursday. And Friday night, I get a call from Merrill. Now, Merrill seldom calls me unless he had something specific. And uh, he is just waxing poetic. I mean, my God, you'd think I represented the second coming. I mean... uh, all these geniuses didn't have this figured. You knew, uh, and you had it figured, and you understood this. And, and I said, Merrill, all I said was diversify. <laughs> the oldest, the oldest, he, the oldest he, trick in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he didn't want to know. He thought that I was an absolute genius, and I knew. I, I said, finally, I said, Merrill, my God, the last time someone spoke to me this way was my late mother. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Well, so then what happened when you finally saw your daughter again? A word was never spoken, and I didn't bring it up. If if she wasn't saying it, I wasn't saying it. And that's the way it's been. It's nice to be 80 years old and to be able to say, whether you say it or not, I told you so. I'm the smart one. You're the idiot. I told you. But did he say that? No. No. No, he didn't say that. You've never been tempted to say, I told you so? Nope. Nope. Now that, gee, that sounds pretty good, you know? I'm impressed with myself now. <laughs> no, I didn't. It's just a matter of dealing with people, and especially your kids. You, you, you don't play uh, gotcha. Pam says that there's another reason that her dad never said, I told you so, and that's that they know people who lost all their savings to Bernie Madoff. Two of Merrill's brothers took huge hits. Merrill's stepmom lost her retirement money. In the face of that, Pam and Merrill don't much feel like celebrating. And her dad doesn't feel like gloating. Sometimes it's hard to feel good about being on the right side of history because you know so many people who are on the wrong side. Which brings us to today's radio program. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. 
Today on our show, The Wrong Side of History, we have four stories of people who find themselves on the losing side of big historical trends. In Act 1, NBR economics correspondent Adam Davidson is back on our show, and he is worried that one of his own relatives, somebody who he's close to, is trying to defy the world economy. Act 2, we have a story of a man cast out by a political campaign. Act 3, some advice for everybody living in the 14th century. Act 4, Alex Kotlowitz on a man who is going down in history is something everybody who knows him says he wasn't for most of his life. Stay with us. Act 1, Hey Mr. DJ. And we are joined right now by one of our regular contributors, Planet Money correspondent, NPR economics correspondent, Adam Davidson. And Adam, you are here today on a mission. I am on a mission. And, and that mission is to save my cousin DJ's life, to make his life better. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I want to say, like, I, I love DJ. He's, he's like my awesome little brother. Um, he's, he's really smart. He's really, really funny. And... And I feel like he has made a horrible decision. He has literally made the decision that puts him on the wrong side of our economy. So he's on the wrong side of the economy. He is on the wrong side of history. In what way? He dropped out of college. He he did the one thing. Let me explain why I get so upset about this. And I am. I'm feeling myself like angry at DJ right now while we're talking. So I, I am – International business and economics correspondent for NPR, which basically means I spend much of my time talking to leading experts, studying the role of the U.S. in the global economy. And there is one thing I have learned with absolute certainty, which is that the competitive advantage of the United States and our citizens, the way we will succeed in this global economy going forward is through skills, education, knowledge. In other words, stay in school get a college degree, and you'll be in a much better position. In the global economy. In the global economy. And, and, and if you drop out of college, then you have basically consciously decided to just not partake in the economic growth and possibilities of the coming decades. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. That 10 years from now and then 30 years from now and 40 years from now – you will make less money. You will have less opportunity. Okay. And so as I understand it, you have tried to convince DJ of this. You have been completely unsuccessful. And so you have now enlisted some help. Yes. I, I have a friend, Pietra Rivoli. She's um, a professor of economics at Georgetown University. So I thought, well, DJ won't listen to me. Maybe he will listen to a qualified expert, a professor of economics. All right. So I'm going to bow out now and you're going to speak to both of them. They are both on the line. Good luck. DJ, let's start with you. What are you, 25? How yeah, old? getting up there. Yeah. You graduated high school, and then you went to Quinsigaman Community College right there in Worcester, right? That's right. And what happened then? Um, I went for about two weeks and decided it was time to tell my father that I never wanted to go in the first place, and I don't want to be here now, so I'm going to have to drop out. Now, you told me that you actually wished you had dropped out earlier in your life. Yeah. If I had more time to work and make money then, I would have rather, rather have done that. You mean not gone to high school and made money from 14 or 15? Yeah, but um, still, the high school experience was definitely worth it. Because you were a big football star and all the girls loved you. Yeah, yeah that's, that's <laughs> part of it. Yeah. 
why, what do you think your life is going to be like as a guy with a high school degree but no advanced education? I'm going to work a hands-on construction job for the rest of my life and have sore body parts every day. Uh, what are you doing now? Um, I work for Henkels and McCoy. We do uh, telecommunications. It's pretty much a outside construction. I call you a ditch digger, is that Yeah, it? I dig ditches by hand. And now before that, you, you were a bodyguard or a bouncer at a strip club? Yeah. Yeah, we don't have to go into details, but yes, I did a little of that. What was it, Crazy Girls? What's the name? <laughs> no, Centerfolds. <laughs> Centerfolds, right. Um, and so, and what do you think? Like, when you look at our uncles, for example, um, they didn't go to college, and they've done pretty well, right? Kenny's a truck driver, and uh, Phil is a connoisseur. A connoisseur. <laughs> <laughs> if you know him, that would be really funny. That's very funny. <laughs> and then when you look at our... I mean, I'm just saying, from where you're sitting, if you looked around uh, our family, at our yep. grandfather, Pepe, yep. um, he didn't go to college. He had a good life. He owned his own house. He had a car. He had a vacation home, or at least a vacation... Uh, uh, a trailer. Trailer, yeah. Um, and he was a truck dispatcher, you know, Um but here's what I want to say to you. I think that you don't understand that the world has changed from the world that our uncles and grandparents lived in and that your future will be much worse if you don't go to college. And I want Pietra to tell me if I'm right. You know, Adam, I'm not sure you are after I've listened to, to DJ and hear a little bit about all he's done in his um, 25 years. A lot of people historically didn't go to college, uh, worked in kind of uh, low-skill manufacturing jobs. And in the global economy today, those are exactly the jobs that have disappeared or some people say moved to China and Mexico and, and so forth. So if you worked in one of those old textile factories in Massachusetts um, and the textile f- and the textile factory closed then you're you're kind of out of luck without it without a college degree but if you listen to to DJ's history uh let's see the he's a bouncer at a strip club um he's putting up telecom equipment um he works on uh, construction sites you know these are all careers or jobs that you know we would say are uh the, well the technical term would be they're non-tradable so in other words um that bouncer job is not moving to China uh, and in fact, the strippers inside their job's not moving to China either. And the work he's doing, uh, setting up uh, you know telecom lines or, or what digging have you, digging ditches, that, that can't move. The, the ditch digging can't move. And if I listen to some of your family history, you now there's a lot of jobs in that history that aren't moving too. Um, truck drivers, those aren't going to China, for example. You know these jobs aren't going to disappear. And it sounds like DJ's developing uh, developing a number of those. Thanks. Well, I'm very frustrated because I your thought face, Adam. <laughs> I thought that Pietra and I would beat up on DJ. And <laughs> now the two of you are siding up against me. All right. But let, let, let me ask. There's a couple thoughts I have. My thought was that the global economy needs me more, but I guess you're saying that's not necessarily true. You know, do you know how hard it is? You know how many lawyers within, you know, probably two miles of my house. I don't know how many people I have. Um, I got thousands of lawyers, and I don't think I have a single person that I'd trust the wiring in my house to. <laughs> you know, um, and 
somebody on that construction site that DJ's working is going to work their way up to supervisor and foreman and, and so forth and so on, uh, and, and some will not. Yeah, I do have more to offer. I can do landscaping. I can do electrical work. Um, what else? Woodwork. I can do cabinets. Uh. And you're a really good people person. Yeah. Like, I feel like I could see you as a leader. I'm a social butterfly. <laughs> yeah. These are great skills in, you know, in any economy. The, the guys I worry about, actually, are not, not, are not people who sound like DJ. The, the guys I worry about are the guys who you know, have worked in that same plant uh, doing more or less the same job in the auto factory for 30 years, and now the plant closes, and now what have they got? Um, that, I think, is a, you know, is, a, is, is a bigger challenge. They're much more at risk in this global economy. Before we talked, I was thinking about our family, and I was thinking, like, the people who went to college, I feel like there's a... Very I, successful. But more anxious, also. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, DJ has a pretty awesome life, right? Yeah. I mean, it's very... It's, it's, it's stable, it's fun, it's, you know, you leave your work at the workplace, and, and you're off, and you're having oh, a yeah. good time. I never talk about work when I'm not working. I make an exception for you, though. All right, thanks. <laughs> well, my brother, you know, quit high school, and uh, he lives on, he has a very nice life. He lives on a boat in Florida. Um, and, you know, he's a, he does marine carpentry, and on any given day, if you looked at the two of us, you know, it, I think it would look like he's having a better time. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I thought what we were going to learn in this conversation, and it turns out I was totally wrong. What I thought we were going to learn is... That I was wrong. That DJ's wrong, I'm right, <laughs> and he should go to college. And that's just obvious, and his life is going to get worse and worse. That is clearly not what we've learned. <laughs> but that's <Good>. because <laughs> you and I have these sort of snotty biases. Right. Ooh. That's true. Right? No, yeah, I, no, I, I true. share them. Yeah. Everyone everyone does. It's no big deal. Yeah. I can't wait to see DJ and treat him with my newfound respect. Nice. Maybe we should, yeah, we should just talk every couple of years and... Yeah, and see and follow his progress. I'd like to do that. That would be and really ours, nice. And ours, Adam. Yeah. Our right, and really ours, nice. right. When my job is outsourced and DJ has a really good construction gig and I'm trying really hard to get him to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> you already hired. Thanks, man. Adam Davidson is learning new things about the economy all the time and telling the world on NPR News and on the Planet Money podcast. A good friend of mine sat with me and he cried He told me a story I know he hadn't lied He said he went for a job And this man said Without an education You might as well be dead Act 2 Does this suit make me look terrorist to you? My name is Ranny Gisarly uh, I'm a doctor I'm a physician here in the uh, suburbs of Chicago I'm a dermatologist which is to say that Randy Gisarelli is not in politics. He's not a pundit. He's not a public figure. But this past fall, during the 2008 election, something happened to a friend of his, something that made Randy feel like he and his friend were swimming against the tide of history. And in his frustration, Randy wrote an essay that ended up in the election coverage at this website that was a favorite for political junkies, 538.com. Even though the election is uh, passed, the essay still seemed relevant today, and we invited him in to read it. Basically, what happened is that candidate Barack Obama hired Rani's friend Mazen Azbahi to be the campaign's national coordinator for Muslim American affairs. And then, after just 10 days in this job, 
the Wall Street Journal ran a story that stated uncritically all kinds of rumors against Isbahi and explained that because of these rumors, Mazen Isbahi was resigning from the campaign. Here's what Rani wrote. Mazen Isbahi is one of my best friends. Our kids play together and we dine together at least once a month. We're close. And now, thanks to the work of some racist jerkwads, his reputation has been sullied from coast to coast. So I'm crushed for him as a friend. But I'm furious as a Muslim, because what has happened is that Mazen was forced to resign because of a smear campaign that targeted him for the sin of being Muslim. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's parse the original Wall Street Journal column, if you don't mind. It says, quote, In 2000, Mr. Azbahi briefly served on the board of Allied Assets Advisors Fund. Its other board members at the time included Jamal Syed, the imam at a fundamentalist-controlled mosque in Illinois. Quote, I served on that board for only a few weeks before resigning as soon as I became aware of public allegations against another member of the board, Mr. Azbahi said in his resignation letter. Since concerns have been raised about that brief time, I am stepping down to avoid distracting from Barack Obama's message of change. Where do I start? Let's start with Jamal Syed, the imam at a fundamentalist-controlled mosque. The consensus of the vast majority of Muslims in Chicago is that the mosque is not a fundamentalist anything, which is why it has such a large membership. Some of the mosque's more recent projects include donating a riverfront garden to the city of Chicago, there's a picture of Mayor Richard Daly at the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and becoming the first mosque in the country to run on solar power. Syed has never been convicted of any crime, nor arrested for any crime nor indicted for any crime. He has been accused of supporting Hamas, but has never been found guilty of anything. I'm not here to defend Sayed. I don't know him. But the point is that Sayed is not a convicted criminal, or a mafia don that walks the streets while people cower in fear. What he is, is the imam of the largest mosque in the Chicago area. Mazin is an active member of the Muslim community here in Chicago. It would be almost impossible for him to be active and not have some contact with Sayed. So Mazen happened to serve on the board of an investment fund with Sayed, until he learned about allegations that Sayed had been involved in raising funds for Hamas, at which time he quit the board. In 2000, before 9-11, before Iraq, before the U.S. government shut down Muslim charities after accusing them of funneling money to Hamas and other designated terrorist groups. But in 2000, before our own government felt that these charitable activities were illegal, Mazen decided to dissociate himself from even the hint of impropriety. That doesn't support accusations that he's a terrorist sympathizer. It refutes them. The Wall Street Journal column continues. The Justice Department named Mr. Sayed an unindicted co-conspirator in the racketeering trial last year of several alleged Hamas fundraisers, which ended in a mistrial. Pardon my Arabic, but what the f*** is an unindicted co-conspirator? And why is our government using this phrase? Whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? And whatever happened to the notion that indictment is just the first step towards a guilty verdict? A prosecutor is supposed to be able to indict a ham sandwich. So what does it say that they've never been able to indict Sayyid? In that racketeering trial, which again, ended in a mistrial, the government listed close to 300 Muslim organizations as unindicted co-conspirators. Which is tantamount to saying, we think some of them are terrorists, and since we don't know who, we'll just blame them all. So much for innocent until proven guilty. This isn't even guilty until proven innocent. It's guilty with no recourse to prove you're innocent. How can you defend yourself against an indictment which doesn't exist? Sayyid is guilty by association. Which makes Mazen, apparently, 
guilty by association with someone who's guilty by association. It's McCarthyism, squared. Oh, and you know who else is associated with Sayed? As Jake Tapper of ABC News pointed out, the board that Mazin and Sayed both sat on was the Allied Asset Advisor Funds, a subsidiary of the North American Islamic Trust, or NATE. NATE is an advisor to the Dow Jones Islamic Fund. Dow Jones, which publishes the Wall Street Journal, which broke the story that forced Mazin's resignation. We're officially through the looking glass, people. I'm so angry, I don't know where to direct my anger. What the Wall Street Journal is saying is that Mazen Azbahi has a link to people suspected of terrorism. What I'll tell you is this. Mazen is not a terrorist. He's not a fundamentalist. He's not an Islamist. The only thing he is guilty of is being a Muslim and being an active member of the Muslim community. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have been qualified for the position in the first place. As Ahmed Rehab put it in today's Chicago Tribune, the headline should read, Muslim liaison for presidential campaign resigns after connections to Muslim community are found. If Mazen Azbahi is a terrorist, then I'm a terrorist. And if I were named to the same position, I'm sure they would have found a way to label me a terrorist as well. And that's what this is about. The same people who claim there is no such thing as a moderate Muslim will do everything in their power to slander people like Mazen Azbahi, the epitome of a moderate, modern, integrated, tolerant, patriotic American Muslim, as an extremist. They will set their sights on any Muslim who seeks to be a part of the political process and will pick them off one by one until there are no more targets left. If Obama won't stand up to the flimsiest of accusations linking someone in his campaign to terrorists, however remotely and ridiculously, I'm not sure what he'll stand up against. The world is at war right now, but it's not a war of Christian versus Muslim. It's a war of moderates versus extremists, and the two groups are battling it out in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. But they're also battling here in America. This week, the extremists won. Manny Gisele. In the many weeks since he wrote that essay, first the Obama campaign hired another coordinator for Muslim American Outreach. And um, the same exact thing happened to her. She was accused of meeting with Muslim leaders who were suspected of terrorist sympathies, with no proof of those sympathies. It didn't actually get to the point where she had to resign, but seeing it happen again did make Granny a little more understanding of what the Obama campaign was up against and a little less mad at them. After that, as perhaps you heard, the Obama campaign won the presidency. Granny's friend Mazen is hoping that he may end up getting a job with the Obama administration. Act three, family feudalism. All right, ready? Cue trumpets. Cue trumpets. Welcome to America's favorite game show. It's time to make your phone call to the 14th century. I'm your host, Chip McMartin. What information will our three lucky contestants share with the people of the Middle Ages? Let's find out. Your first contestant, ladies and gentlemen, Gregory Palkapo. Hi, Greg. Hi, Chip. Welcome to Phone Call to the 14th Century. It says here on the card that you want to be a race car driver. I do, but I can't. Okay, well, you know the rules. This phone is connected to a phone in a hut somewhere in the 14th century. You've got 30 seconds to impart as much useful information as you can to the people back then. What are you going to tell them? I think I'm going to focus on hygiene and stuff. Good luck. Ready, phone call. Begin! Hi, this is Gregory Palkapo, talking machine from the 21st century. Don't be scared. Okay, write everything down. Wash your hands. Boil your water. There's no such thing as witches. Everybody floats. Monkeys are cousins of God. Pass. Monkeys are cousins of humans. The finches had different beaks to pick up stuff. A fish 
walked out of the water. He could talk. That means there's no God. Dig a boil. It's a black syrup in the ground. Light it on fire. Make a motorcycle. Make a factory. Uh, don't throw away the middle of the donut. You can sell it. Uh, go to Egypt. There's a bunch of mummies and gold. It's yours for the taking. Some of the popes are evil. Some of the popes are evil. Some of the popes are evil indeed, ladies and gentlemen. Let's see what our judges say about that. And they're going to give you 12 and a half major concepts. That puts you in good standing. Let's meet our first challenger. Please welcome Blaine Cardozo. Hi, Blaine. Hi. You ready to make your phone call to the 14th century? Oh, yeah. You think you can beat Greg? I have a secret weapon, Chip. Oh, you do? You want to give us a hint? Let's just say it rhymes with Piddle Pinglish. Okay. Ready, phone call, begin. One that opera with the sure sota, the global warming hath pierced to the rota, and bathed the omega-3 fatty acids in the floor, when Zephyrus eke with his antibiotics such as penicillin hath in every hult and heat the, the plug-in hybrid, and the young son hath in the ram his half... Uh, Five half, seconds, Blaine. Uh, half... Uh, our pizza delivery or your money back. Time's up. Blaine Cardoza, that was incredible. Are you sure you didn't just make that up? N- no, I'm fluent in Middle English. Then how would you say, hi, Mom? Hi, Mommy. Okay. What do our judges say? And they say that's correct. They're going to give you nine and a half major concepts. Another incredible score. Ladies and gentlemen, what will it take? From your final challenger, let's meet him... Donald Darndy. Hi, Don. Uh, hi, Chip. What are you going to tell the people of the 14th century? I'm just going to focus on being a teacher like I am right here on Earth. Well, it's the same planet, Don. It's a different century. Ready, phone call. Begin. This is Don Darndy, teacher from the future. Okay, first of all, always believe in yourself. Never give up your dreams or they'll give up on you. The bubonic plague. It might seem bad now, but you'll look back on it and laugh. You're losing, Don. Okay, forget it. I I want you to do something for me now. Get some coins, a suit of armor, um, any old books you don't want, any tapestries, anything with a unicorn on it. Put it in a box and write my name on it. Donald Darndy. Give the box to Christopher Columbus. Tell Columbus to give it to Lewis and Clark. Have them leave the box at the Elks Lodge in um, Modesto, California. Oh, Don. You told him to send you a bunch of stuff from the Middle Ages? It'll get here. Wouldn't it have gotten here already? Oh, yeah. Let's see what our judges say, and they're going to give you 0.023 major concepts. It's not enough to beat Greg, who becomes our new champion and millionaire. Congratulations, and ladies and gentlemen, come see us next week when we make our phone call to the 14th century. That was the San Francisco comedy group Casper Hauser. Their latest book, Weddings of the Times, a parody of the New York Times wedding pages, comes out this May. You can find more of their comedy online at www.casperhauser.com. Coming up, it takes 61 years to build up a reputation. And when you are on the wrong side of history, just seven weeks to destroy it. That's in a minute. From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. This is American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our program, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, stories of people who think they are stuck on the wrong side of history. We've arrived at Act 4 of our show, Act 4, The Other Guy. If you never lived in Chicago, chances are you don't have much idea about what Harold Washington meant to the city. Washington became the city's first black mayor in 1983, and it caused a historic change. Before Harold, and everybody called him Harold, Even basic city services like garbage collection were worse in black neighborhoods. 
Chicago was the city where race relations were so bad, Martin Luther King gave up on it back in the 1960s. Barack Obama moved to Chicago after Harold took office, and in his book, Dreams from My Father, Obama writes about how people talked about their new black mayor, quote, with a familiarity and affection normally reserved for a relative. Had to be here before Harold to understand what he means to this city, an old-timer tells Obama. Before Harold, seems like we'd always been second-class citizens, plantation politics, police brutality rampant. Harold said things so that for the first time, white and black citizens were treated the same by the city government. But it's remembered just as much for his charisma. He was eloquent. He was personable. He did not mince words. You pick up a local paper and these guys just wax so eloquent, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Don't have the slightest idea about the phenomena. Don't understand the history. Don't understand the mindset. Don't understand what pushed people. All they say is, gee, black folks must be angry. <laughs> gee, black folks vote for black folks. They must hate white folks. Ain't got nothing to do with nothing. Nothing. Crazy stuff. So Harold was this historic figure for the city. The big library downtown and a college are named after him. One of the first hour-long stories we ever did on our program was about him. So imagine for a second what it was like to be the guy who he ran against and who he beat in that historic election back in the 1980s. That guy was a Republican named Bernie Epton. And for anybody who actually remembers him, Epton is known not just for being the white opponent for the city's first black mayor. He's also remembered for the way his campaign was fought. It was not pretty. The campaign did not quash the racial tension in the city. It unleashed it in all its fury. Reporter Alex Kotlowitz, who lives in Chicago, found himself recently revisiting the Epton story. One of Epton's political peers once called Epton the accidental racist, though, as Alex points out, there was more to him than the way that most Chicagoans think of him. I thought of Bernie Epton this past October while watching John McCain. The parallels with the Epton-Washington race were eerie. A white Republican with a reputation as a principled guy waging an increasingly bitter fight against a charismatic black opponent. The details of the two races were widely different, different men, different eras, but both candidates seemed like actors miscast as the heavy and then surprised to find themselves stuck in that role. Epton, like McCain, was his own man. He was an iconoclast, not afraid to poke fun at himself. Mr. Epton, uh, Republican candidates are... supposedly low profile in Chicago, but it was pointed out to me that there was a, a, a feature piece done on you in the People magazine, I guess. Yes, this week they, la- That might be the most exposure any Republicans ever had in Chicago. Well, actually, I think that they got lost. They didn't realize I was a Republican until they finished. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I'm sure they wouldn't have gone ahead with it. There's a reason people might not have known Epton was a Republican. He was this unusually progressive guy, an early opponent of McCarthyism, and when he served in the state legislature, one of his law partners says that he was so pro-consumer that it ticked off some of their law clients, insurance companies. And on the race question, he was clear about where he stood. He marched in Memphis with the sanitation workers after Dr. King's assassination. He sat on this board of an old-age home for African-American women, and as a state rep for 14 years, he fought redlining. Even in his personal life, his principles guided him. His son Jeff went to Hyde Park High School, where he was one of only a handful of white students in his freshman class. For years, we'd watched people move out of the neighborhood to the north side or to the suburbs to get their children away from what was becoming a majority black school district. Dad never did that. This stuff mattered to him absolutely, and he believed that if you moved 
out of the city, if white middle-class families left, it was a betrayal. Bernie Epton did not set out to oppose the first serious black mayoral candidate in Chicago's history. In fact, when he got the Republican nomination, the Democratic primary was still up in the air. It was a three-way race among Harold Washington, Jane Byrne, and Richard Daley. He thought he'd be running against either Byrne or Daley, and he knew he didn't have much of a chance. Chicago for decades has been a thoroughly democratic city. In the previous mayoral election in 1979, the Democratic candidate received 82% of the vote. So Epton knew he didn't stand a chance. And that was okay. This was the ritual that a Republican candidate would run their perfunctory campaign and use it maybe as a chance to raise some issues. Does it matter to you what happens tonight in the Democratic Party? Not at all. I, uh, I think any one of the three will be extremely difficult to defeat. But on primary night, everything suddenly changed as it became increasingly clear that Harold Washington, not Byrne or Daley, would be Epton's Democratic opponent. So many people are saying if Harold Washington wins, the white people will be afraid and they will then vote for you and that improves your chances. Well, I resent that very much. I think that uh, Harold Washington and I, if, if he is the winner, uh, I am positive that we will come out with a joint statement to perhaps speak together to repudiate it. I don't want to be elected because I'm white and Harold doesn't want to be elected because he's black. I want to be elected because I'm the best qualified. Epton sounds certain about how he's going to run his campaign, with honor, with principles. But once it became clear that Washington, a black man, was his opponent, everyone, and I mean everyone, people in the neighborhoods to the operatives in the National Republican Party to Bernie Epton himself, instinctually knew that now Epton actually had a chance to win. One of the people working on his campaign was his daughter, Dale. She was there when national Republican operatives showed up in Chicago from Washington with money and ideas. As much as they were supposedly working for us, as soon as the people from D.C. came down, we had a new campaign slogan, which uh, we got a lot of flack for. And that slogan was? Captain for mayor, before it's too late. This slogan, before it's too late, became infamous, not only in Chicago, but around the country. Its meaning seemed transparent. But not to Epton. Epton insisted, both in public and in private, that before it's too late, plainly referred to Chicago's financial problems. And we thought Epton before it's too late because of fiscal, a fiscal situation. You know, we didn't see anything else with that slogan. Apparently, a lot of other people did. They felt it was a racist thing that we were saying before uh, an Afro-American would be elected mayor that it was intended to, to show that my father was white and Harold was black. Jill, do you think that the people from Washington who came in and came up with that slogan, I mean, do you think they believe that as well, or do you think they... No, I, I think that they knew that it might be cons- misconstrued. The slogan set a tone for the campaign, the very tone Epton said he didn't want. Now it was going to be whites versus blacks, with Epton as the white savior. And soon anonymous leaflets popped up in white neighborhoods all over the city. One of them read, Your vote for Mr. Epton will stop contamination of the city hall by a Mr. Baboon. Around town, Epton supporters donned various buttons. One depicted a watermelon with a slash through it. Another button had nothing on it at all. It was just white. None of these were being distributed by Epton's campaign, but it was all being done in his name. One day, my mom and my father and I were were walking somewhere, and 
I remember someone coming up and saying to me, I'm going to vote for your father because he's white. And I said, don't bother. Don't, please, I don't, we don't want your vote. And my mom said, you know, Dale, you just have to realize that some people feel this way. My father, uh, I, I never saw my father recoil from, I never saw him show any um, issues with getting support for the wrong reasons, unlike myself. Um, he had been in politics a long time, and he was willing to accept a vote for a vote. Thank you. Thank you all so much. We, we have some other meetings to go to, believe me. I'd much rather stay here with you. I don't think there's any meeting that can compete with you. You give me, I found the fountain of youth, being with you, your enthusiasm. The rallies energized Stepton. In just a few weeks, he'd gone from being a pretty obscure but principled state legislator to a man who was now drawing crowds of 10,000. Bernie, you look tired. Actually, I love it. I don't often get this kind of exposure. It's, a, it's really a pleasure. You're having a good time. I, much better than I expected, especially now. And most places he went, hordes of people chanted his name. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. It was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for a whole bunch of people. Don Siegel was one of Epton's law partners. It was always interesting to me. Uh, when I would watch on television and he would, he would go out to the southwest side where, where the Republican votes were, um, and certainly the anti-Washington votes, and it was Bernie, 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 uh, and, and I remember thinking, nobody calls him Bernie unless you really knew him well, uh, and yet here are these strangers with whom he would probably not want to sit down and have a cup of coffee because, because they were so different from him. Uh, politically and, and, and emotionally and, 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 you know, every other way, um, now saying Bernie, 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 but the, the, that was not him. Ladies and gentlemen, the next mayor of the city of Chicago, Bernie Epton! When I, when I started this campaign a long time ago, it was Bernie who? Today... Today I have an identity, and that I owe entirely to all of you. Very quickly, Epton's candidacy sparked a mass defection from the Democratic Party. It was unprecedented. Some of the most prominent white Democratic politicians in the city, these longtime party hacks in a town where party loyalty was everything, were now turning their back on their own mayoral candidate because he happened to be black. And Epton got caught up in that fervor and the possibility of winning. It was blinding. But one of Epton's campaign workers, his policy director, Haskell Levy, began having qualms. He'd already confronted Epton over the slogan, and Epton, even while defending the slogan, told him, Haskell, stay with me. If we win this election, I'll get rid of all these Republican operatives and opportunistic Democrats, and we'll do good work once we get in. And so Haskell stayed. But then one afternoon at campaign headquarters, Haskell noticed a pile of papers by the front door. They were hundreds of copies of an op-ed piece written by William Sapphire, conservative columnist for the New York Times. It basically claimed the following. If blacks can vote for blacks because they're blacks, white can vote for whites because they're whites. And I looked at it, and I just hit the roof, and I took the whole pile and threw it into the garbage can. 
I mean, it's a shallow, it's, it's, it's a stupid way of looking at the world. It's, it's just false. Right, but also it was in the context of what had been going on in that campaign. I mean, it was just, in some ways, the campaign was using it to justify... And incendiary, in the incendiary thing, it was being passed out. People were coming in to collect them to give out in the neighborhoods. When blacks get screwed because they're blacks, they're a legitimate interest group. What, what, what is the white interest group? I can understand a poll voting for a poll, a check voting for a check. But why would a white vote for another white? The only thing in this particular circumstance they have in common is that they don't like blacks. And so this, it was after that that you went and talked to Bernie Epton the second this time. This was the second time I said that I'd had it. I said, I said to, do you realize what's happening? I said, you have to repudiate the racist campaign. You've got to repudiate any people that are supporting you out of racist reasons. And if you don't, I'm gone. And if you don't, I'm voting for Harold Washington. And Bernie said, his argument is correct. Sapphire's argument is correct. And I said, that's it, Bernie. And that's when he got pissed off. And he picked up my coat and jacket and briefcase, and he threw, ostentatiously threw it out of his office. And he said, and he literally said, get the f*** out. And he threw me out of the office. And I left. That was the end of it. Washington and Epton had served together in the state legislature, and they knew each other well. In fact, during the campaign, Washington at one point told a friend, that's not Bernie. That's not the Bernie I know. Chicago's Democratic candidate for mayor, Harold Washington, and Democratic presidential frontrunner, Walter Mondale, were run out of a white neighborhood in Chicago today. And then it happened, an incident so sour that the whole nation took notice. This is a report from NBC National News. It's Palm Sunday at St. Pascal's Church on the north side, and the streets are lined with white people holding Epton for mayor signs. The Washington Mondale motorcade stopped a block short of the church. The two candidates walked the rest of the way through an angry crowd, encountering the most open racial hostility of this racially tense campaign. 95% of the blacks vote for Washington. They, they are more racist than we are. Who the hell are they trying to kill? Within minutes, Washington decided to cancel this appearance. Someone had scrawled on the church in huge letters, nigger die. Epton had to respond, and he did. I'm appalled that any people in any community would interfere with the worship by any religious denomination. And like you, I reject any of that antagonism or racism or bias or call it what you will. But the damage had been done. The amazing and perhaps frightening thing about it is Epton almost won. He lost the election by a mere 3% of the vote. It was frightening not because Epton might not have been a good mayor, but rather because it was clear that the only reason he might have won, a relatively unknown Republican in an overwhelmingly Democratic city, was because he was white. And this is the moment, right after he lost, where Bernie Epton could have saved his reputation. He could have made a brave, difficult speech to try to heal a divided and bitter city, a speech where he reminded everyone why they liked him in the first place, which is precisely what John McCain did in November. 
In his concession speech, McCain was generous, dignified, humble. He acknowledged this incredible moment in history and urged everyone to bridge their differences. He stepped outside of his own personal defeat at the moment when it must have been the hardest thing to do. Epton missed his moment, his moment to rise above it all, to congratulate the new mayor, to call for the city to come together, to reclaim himself. Early the next morning, the Wednesday after the Tuesday election, Don Siegel again, Epton's law partner. I received a call uh, from someone very high up in the Washington campaign saying that they're going to have this a unity breakfast uh, and that it was going to be important for the city that everybody get together as quickly as possible uh, to show that, that, that the city, in fact, is going to be relatively united and we're not going to have major problems. Uh, and so... He said, I've been trying to reach Bernie. This was early in the morning, uh, and, and I, I haven't been able to reach him. He said, I assume, Don, you've got, you've got a number that you can reach him at. And, of course, I did. Um, Bernie's wife, Audrey, answered, uh, and I said, can I, can I talk to Bernie? And she said, um, I, don't, I don't think so, Don. We're, 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 we're leaving to Florida, and we're, we're just getting ready to leave. Uh, and I said, well, this is, this is important. Uh, and she said, I don't think so. I said, well, could you just tell him that I'm on the phone, I had gotten a call from the Washington uh, office, and they're, they're, they have a breakfast, and they would want you know, want him to attend, of course. And 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 she she called, you know, she said, Bernie, it's it's Don. Uh, there's a unity breakfast. You know, with, uh, you know, you want to talk to him? Uh, and then you know, she came back and she said, No, we're we're going to Florida, and that's it. I'm I'm sorry, Don. I'm sure you understand, and that was it. And, and there's no question in my mind he was just so devastated by those events. Um, but devastated by the fact that he lost or devastated by how the campaign... Yeah, I th- I th- yeah uh, it was the, the culmination, you know, everything coming together when he woke up that morning and just realized, you know, that's, you know now I'm, I'm, I'm not mayor. And, and again, this is a little psychoanalytical, and maybe just realizing and maybe people... Are going to remember me for some of the wrong reasons. He he's got a legacy that that he wasn't going to be proud of. Uh, I think he just wanted to get away. Wanted to disappear. Absolutely. In that time after the election, in its wake, there was one person who was both close to Bernie Epton and yet had some perspective someone who still is trying to make sense of what happened to Epton, not just during the campaign, but afterwards. And that's Epton's son, Jeff, who I'd met years earlier. While his dad was running for mayor in Chicago as a Republican, Jeff was running for city council in Ann Arbor, Michigan, far to the left of his dad as a Democratic Socialist. Their relationship had been strained for years, mainly over their political differences. I interviewed Jeff for NPR's Morning Edition in 1983, a week before his dad lost the election. It's a difficult question, but if you lived in Chicago, would you you vote for your dad? I think that that there's a, a line I have to draw here. My father's... The, perhaps the man that I have the deepest love and respect for of anyone I know, there are, like I said, those political differences. How 
I would resolve the contradiction between those differences and my deep affection for him, I think, has to remain my private business. When Bernie Epton, in the thick of his losing campaign, heard what his son said, he stopped talking to him. Then several months after the election, Jeff got a phone call from his dad, pretty much out of the blue. His dad said nothing about not having spoken in months and invited Jeff to a White Sox game in Chicago. We go to Comiskey Park, the old Comiskey, and it's before the first pitch. The crowd's, like, really pumped. When my dad walks into the stadium, he's an instantly recognizable guy. He's got all this celebrity from the campaign a few months earlier. He's uh, just completely familiar-looking to people. And as we're walking to our seats, uh, people start recognizing Dad, and they come up to him to shake his hand. And after a while, people start chanting, Bernie, Bernie. Now, it's not the whole stadium, but it feels like a lot of people. And the crowd's all white. There's certainly not black voters going, Bernie, Bernie. And it suddenly starts feeling wrong to me. And I can feel the hair standing up on the back of my neck. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. And I'm thinking, they don't know you. They don't know who you were. They don't know what you stand for. And they love you for bad reasons. Those bad reasons being? Because you represented us in the fight to save Chicago before it was too late. But it's also, you can see the power, the transforming effect it has on my father. He is so happy, and this is washing over him. He is just delighted and smiling and waving and talking to people and standing a little straighter and, and just energized. That small moment of euphoria didn't last. Strangers at baseball games cheered Epton, but he became an outsider in his own city. He lost friends. His law firm began to collapse. He became more and more withdrawn. He didn't even talk with anyone about the campaign, not his daughter Dale or his son Jeff. On those few occasions after the election when he gave an interview or spoke publicly, Epton blamed the media for getting him wrong. He always felt abused by the process himself. He could never separate his sense of being a victim from the feeling that he had a responsibility there as well, that he might have failed. And then in 1987, there was the final blow. Bernie Epton had heard that Harold Washington was thinking of appointing him to a commission. But the day before Thanksgiving, Washington died of a heart attack. And the way Jeff sees it, his dad, who'd battled depression in the past, lost what he saw as his last chance of any kind of public redemption. Three weeks later, Epton went to Ann Arbor to visit Jeff. I went out with him the night before he died. And it was clear he didn't want to live anymore. We had been intending to go out to dinner and go to a movie. We ended up going to McDonald's and he didn't eat and then he asked to be taken home uh, not home the hotel he was staying in he was broke his reputation was in tatters 
he was in, in bad shape. Then he died that night. People uh, suggested that it was probably heart failure. I have my own uh, thoughts about how things proceeded. Jeff didn't want to say any more about that. The very first sentence of Bernie Epton's obituary in the New York Times describes him as the man who came close to wrecking Harold Washington's 1983 effort to become the first black mayor of Chicago. It would be glib to say that Epton couldn't escape that characterization. Maybe he could have. It's what Jeff hopes, that maybe somehow he still can. Alex Kogowitz is the author of many books, including Never a City So Real, which is about Chicago. Our program is produced today by Jane Feltis and me with Alex Bloomberg, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Production help from Andy Dixon. Seth Lenz, our production manager. Music help from Jessica Hopper. A huge thanks to Doug McGray for putting us in touch with Harold Wolchinski and his family, who we heard from at the opening of the show. Also thanks to Julie Kasky and Mary Gaffney. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. I've actually got him on the line. Uh, Tori, why don't you say a few words about your difficult, difficult job? I never talk about work when I'm not working. Uh, I make an exception for you, though. Thanks, Tori. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.